So he started to stab the steering wheel. He started to cut the steering wheel. He did have that control over me now that I look at it, right? It wasn't love, it was him being controlling. He ended up blaming a lot of his actions based on how he was treated when he was growing up. My phone would just blow up with text messages from him. Why aren't you answering me? What are you doing? I really saw a physical aspect of him that was scary and held me by the root and said, I could kill you down here and no one would find your body. And then he let me go and he went into the bedroom. He took his gun out of his waistband, loaded around into the chamber, then began to pull the trigger. And I really did think I was dead. I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and actual survivors themselves. On October 16, 2008, Heather Gogolich's life changed forever when she became a victim of intense emotional and physical abuse by her husband. Instead of succumbing to feelings of hopelessness and unworthiness, she realized this was an opportunity to find her strength, and she found it. Heather took a horrific experience and turned it into a life calling. She now advocates for victims of domestic violence by offering resources and speaking to people all over the country. Heather is a career law enforcement professional. She is highly decorated. Today, she is Morris Township, New Jersey's police lieutenant. She is also an author, a motivational speaker, victim advocate, and an adjunct professor, and a mother. Heather and I met during an all-day conference conducted virtually in August last year. We were so impressed by each other's presentations, we knew we needed to come together and do more. For the purposes of this episode of When Dating Hurts, we will use the paradigm of males and females in dating relationships. It needs to be said that dating abuse and violence happens equally in every possible kind of relationship. So, Heather... Thank you for squeezing us in today. Thank you for having me. So I'll just kind of dive into something I'm curious about. How would you describe yourself around the time you met your husband-to-be? So I was 23 years old when I met my ex-husband, and we were both in the police academy. I was living at home because I was going to be going through the police academy. Yeah, that's how we met. When you met him, what first attracted you to this man? So he is a person that comes off as very charismatic and passionate, someone who wants to protect people, right? I guess that's why we all become police officers. Really, when we talk about it, we want to protect people, or at least the good ones do. We met just by interacting within the class together. There was an obvious attraction between the two of us, and we did start dating while we were in the police academy, but we had a lot of the same common values and cultures, and we had decently sized families. You know, we both wanted a bigger family. I think at that time, starting the police academy, I felt as though I was starting my life, my career, that everything was falling into place. So the next logical step would of course be to find someone who is the person I should be married to. You know, he made me feel protected. He always had my back and helped me get through really hard times in the police academy. I just was even more attracted to him for that. Right. I mean, I, I can see everything's 
like you say, everything's coming together and he's very supportive. It's not one of those things like later, if you're dating, you have to kind of explain why you need to work tonight or I need to do this thing and all of that. This person already knows all that, right? In my mind also back then, we have this commonality of wanting to be a police officer. So you think that your fundamental beliefs and your drive and your passions and the things that really give you purpose in life are along the same line. He had obviously been through a background check, so I didn't have to worry about him being a criminal or or having things to worry about or someone who had no ambition. He had all the things I did. He was working hard in order to be able to be a public servant. Again, we had all of that in common. Was there anything about him, let's say in the early weeks or so that that maybe bothered you right from the beginning, you know, something that maybe tipped you off that that things could go go sideways, go the wrong way? No, not at all. I mean, when you're in the police academy, that's your whole world. You know, you're waking up early, you're getting there, you're going through physical training, you're spending the whole day learning about the basics of being a police officer, and then afterwards you're spending the whole rest of your day preparing for your next day. And so you're really just all enveloped in each other as a class and as a profession. And obviously the two of us were to the point where we even started living together while we were in the police academy. At what point did you start to look at things and say, wow, that didn't feel like I thought it should, or that seemed a little odd, but I'll press on. Maybe he just had a bad moment. That's a hard question to answer because hindsight is always twenty twenty. Right. Sure. When you're in the moment, I think my mindset was about helping him. So I don't really want to bring... So you did spot some things, but you thought, well, rather than call him on it, I'll just kind of help him along and everything will be great. It really wasn't in the beginning because for the first part of our relationship, we were with each other almost 24 hours a day. We would be in the police academy when we would go home and we would prepare for the police academy. And I think that it really started to be an issue when I started wanting to transfer to an all-male department. I think that's when things started to get harder because he was working shift work, but he was on afternoons and I was working day shift. So we saw each other less. There were times I couldn't answer my phone during the day, obviously, because I'm working. If I didn't answer a text message, sometimes it was because my minutes ran out or something like that. So I look back and I think of one instance and as time goes by, I realize there are a lot of things that I have shut down and kept quiet within myself because of fear of embarrassment and fear of people knowing the truth and how weak I was at times when I was with him. Part of me being a law enforcement officer, I think, is being able to show strength. Yes, I understand that. And having people trust that you're making the right decisions. And throughout the whole time I was in a relationship with him, I wasn't able to talk to people because I was in fear of what people would think. I think when you're so new and you're also a female, they go hand in hand with having to prove yourself over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because- So if I can't handle- Yeah, because people are looking at- female police woman. And you're right. I mean, they're looking like, can you measure up and can you be my partner walking down the street and all these different things, I would think, right? Yeah. I mean, there's always a doubt when it comes to females. It's a it's a different approach, right? We, we're females. It isn't something that we dominate in a professional world, right? Teachers, that's something that's female dominated. Nurses was something that was female dominated. We're, we're really starting to get gender equality on both sides of the spectrum now. But being new, you're worried enough. And then being a female on top of it, you're really worried. When you ask about whether or not in the beginning there was something that probably set me off, we went out one night, he got really mad at me, and I don't even really understand why or remember why. And one of the things that I look back now is I can see that part of his controlling behavior was that he never let me drive. 
ever. He always had to be in the driver's seat. And that included even if he was too far under the influence of alcohol. And alcohol becomes a central theme in our relationship. He is an alcoholic, hopefully still recovering. But when he was his worst to me, when it was when he was under the influence of alcohol. So again, that was another thing that in my mind... I allowed to keep me around because I kept telling myself, well, when he doesn't drink alcohol, he's really great to me and he treats me like a queen and he's endearing and understanding and supportive. But when he drinks alcohol, he's a monster. But we were, we were out to eat. We were on our way home. And he was mad at me about something and we were arguing, we were fighting. And I went to go get out of the car at a stoplight because I was so upset by the demoralizing things that he was saying to me and calling me because at that mm-hmm. point it was right, sure. verbal abuse. And I guess in my head, I thought maybe that was normal. You know, he got so mad. He grabbed onto me. He ripped me back into the car. He took out a knife that he had on him and he held it to my throat. Goodness gracious. Yeah. And I was in total shock. I've never seen anybody treat anybody like that. So I was in shock. And then he was just so mad that I was too scared to do anything else. And he had, he had taken my cell phone, so I couldn't make a phone call. He threatened to stab my dad, oh. which, uh, you know, as yeah. I say that out loud, it's just incredible to me that I took that. And him doing that... Yeah, that there was even yeah. another tomorrow with him. Really, because he understood the relationship between my father and I. We are our best friends. We continue to be. I've grown even closer to my mother, too. Obviously, when you're in your early 20s, you're still not in that place where you want to listen to your mom as much. And my relationship with my father has always been where we were best friends. He knew that I would tell my father anything. So he started to stab the steering wheel. He started to cut the steering wheel. And I had to calm him down. That was really my first experience of having to defuse a situation with my ex-husband. And I did break up with him. I had him leave my parents' house, which was really scary for me because, again, I was embarrassed to tell my parents that this had happened. I didn't want to admit to the fact that I had been in something like that with my profession being what it was. And we broke up, and we were broken up for a while to the point where I had started seeing other people. Did he uh, find out about that? No, but we didn't have social media then. I'm sure it was expected. And then at some point, we reconnected somehow months later, maybe six months later. I had already interviewed for a job at another agency and I was just waiting to get hired by them. He and I started to get back together. And part of that was we had that connection. He did have that control over me now that I look at it, right? It wasn't love. It was him being controlling. You know, he said, I realize I have an alcohol problem and there are things in my past that I have never dealt with. And I don't want to get into some of those things on his level because I don't want them to be used as excuses for his actions. So I'm not going to get into it. He ended up blaming a lot of his actions based on how he was treated when he was growing up and some life-changing events that happened to him allegedly in his childhood. So for me, I was thinking, okay, I really do care about this person. He's trying. We all deserve second chances. And he hasn't been drinking alcohol. So he really is taking steps in the right direction. So we started dating again and everything was great. We moved in together. We would have fights, arguments, just arguments. He would put me down and he would make me feel bad. I did get hired by the other agency, Morris Township, and I had a male field training officer. My phone would just blow up with text messages from him. Why aren't you answering me? What are you doing? Why can't you answer my phone calls? He knew exactly why. He worked in a very busy agency and it's busier than where I work. And so he knew that you can't always pick up your phone and there's officer safety issues and you're on calls. And I could 
be doing CPR at that moment, or I could be on a motor vehicle. And he just was completely not understanding of any of that. Did you see what you might call isolation techniques to separate you from your friends or family? I get the impression, I think from a conversation we had once before that he was actually kind of, he really liked your family, liked your parents. Uh, He came off as liking my parents. Do you think that was part of just getting along with you and making things okay? I really don't know. And I don't, I'll never understand people that hurt other people. So when I sit back and try to think of the reasons why he did certain things, I have to really let go of that mindset and think about myself and how I would react to things. I mean, did you feel that he was trying to pull some isolation? Did you experience that? Yeah, absolutely. I did. You know, he said, I wanted to go back and get my degree. I didn't finish my bachelor's degree because I got hired as I was about to finish. He's like, why do you need that? You don't need to go back to school. You already have a job. What do, you, what do you need that for? That was something that's really important to me, my education. I mean, he definitely did start to do things that were isolating. He wouldn't like certain friends of mine. He thought that they were bad influences. I definitely wasn't allowed to keep in touch with friends that were guys. So when these things were happening, you weren't getting the big picture. Like I think with my daughter, obviously she experienced a lot of things. Her friends saw a lot of things and experienced a lot of things with the guy my daughter was dating. But nobody really knew to kind of add it all up and see how it makes a picture. And the picture is that this is a potentially unhealthy, well, it is an unhealthy relationship and it's potentially dangerous. So you weren't, even though you're in the, on the police force, you know, some people might think you had a extra insights maybe at this point in time, but it wasn't adding up to that yet, right? No, I mean, my family, my parents don't treat each other that way. And they didn't witness that growing up either. So that wasn't something that was prominent in our family. And I think until you know what it is, you don't know what it is. Yes. And you don't know how to verbalize it. Sure, of course. Well, so before any violence actually happened, and for a lot of people before it happens, we often hear that there are hints that it could be coming or threats of violence. Now, your story in the car sounds like one of those where there are other ones that were kind of these things where you realize, wow, I I better toe the line with this guy or it's going to be bad for me. No, not at all. That was the only time while we were dating where I really saw a physical aspect of him that was scary. Again, he was under the influence. And in my mind, I justified it for that reason. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, we hear about all kinds of abuse and mostly hear about emotional, physical abuse. And how would you describe the effects of these? Looking back now, not just living in that moment back when you're 23 and four, but looking back, I don't want to lead you too far, but some people feel that the emotional abuse lasts longer and goes deeper. Yeah. I think I'm very blessed to have the parents that I have. I've always known my self-worth and been held to a very high standard in regards to taking care of myself and my mindset, never giving up, knowing that the only limitations I have are the ones that I set on myself. For me, I was very successful in a lot of things that I did growing up. I didn't have a weak mindset. I wasn't as insecure as a lot of victims that I see who have had that for a really long time. And my relationship was not very long with him. I don't think in comparison to many of the victims that I meet that my emotional well-being was as affected. However, there are little things that will still get to me. One of those is the fact that we both have, or that we have two children together. As of about a year or two ago, I would still get anxious and sick to my stomach when there was traffic preventing me from getting the kids to him on time. And Mm -hmm. those are the little things that I think people don't talk about that your body is showing you that you're experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder from an incident that happened. Mm -hmm. And instead of you doing that, you're just 
blow it off. Like, let me just get it done. Let me get it there. And then you let it go. And I finally was able to really start understanding that the way my body was reacting in certain circumstances was from the effects of the emotional and physical abuse that I endured by him. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've talked with people who have had things happen 10 years ago, a dozen years ago, and they still haven't, haven't let it go. Yeah. For instance, my husband now knows that he can't stand over me or behind me at times because I start to get very anxious by that. I don't like when people stand over me because that's what my ex-husband used to do to show power over me. Mm -hmm. But he understands that again. So he doesn't do it. Yeah, I, I totally get that. And and it's like, you'll never, it must be like in wrestling, you're not going to pull that move on me again. You know, I see it. I see it coming. Yeah. Did you ever ask yourself if maybe you brought on some of this abuse? I mean, you knew he had some, at least he told you he had some demons in his past, but, but sometimes I hear that people who are abused Maybe they're trained by their abusers to think that that they're the cause of what's happening to them. Yeah, absolutely. I've done a lot of work over the past 12 years to understand how I continue to stay in that relationship and to forgive myself for being angry at myself for being in it, especially when it comes to my two kids and having them come from that kind of relationship. And I think while I was in it, I was always trying to justify his actions and not because I knew I did anything wrong, but really more to excuse him. And I am a very strong personality person. I'm out there. I'm outgoing. I always want to talk to everybody. And so he would always be like, why are you flirting with that person? I'm like, I'm not flirting with that person. I'm talking to that person just because they happen to be a man. Doesn't mean that I'm interested in that. Right. Sure. And he would say, listen, we're married. Like that's inappropriate. That doesn't look right. It makes people think that, you know, you're not a good wife instead of, you know, <laughs> it, yeah. When it really looked like you're not being an understanding husband. Right. And all I did was work with men. I didn't have any females that I worked with at Morris Township until another female was hired. So yeah, I was around guys all the time. And it was just always about making me feel bad or, and when he would drink is really the only time that we would ever argue. And when I was pregnant, we never argued. So it's hard for me to really put into words for people to understand how little I was actually either physically abused or even verbally abused. And I say verbally abused because I was definitely emotionally and psychologically abused in a way that was inconspicuous, right? It wasn't him calling me names, but there were little controlling factors that he would do. What would be an, what would be an example of that? I'm curious. <sighs> you know, just for the benefit of those who are listening so that they may say, wow, I have the same types of things going on. What would be, you know, what would be an example of that type of thing? These kind of subtle, more subtle things that he would do. I guess in a way, it's almost like gaslighting, right? Yeah. I Just for example, the fact that he would never let me drive. It was never about that I wasn't a good driver. He would never say anything like that. It was always a fight that I just didn't want to have. Even if we went out and he promised me he wasn't going to drink because he had to drive home, he still would. And that actually happened at his family's house one time when I was pregnant and I refused to get in the car and he was so angry with me for causing a scene in front of his family. Did you pay for that one? No, not physically. Again, I was pregnant. Right. But for some people, doesn't that doesn't get in the way. For him, it did. Uh, when I was pregnant, I think looking back, I like to classify it as, as I was a walking symbol of ownership for him uh, because everybody could see the proof that I was his. And it helped with- Okay. I see. Yeah. It helped with his uh, insecurities is really, that's what it comes down to with abuse. He, he needs to gain control because of the fact that he's insecure about things that have happened to him or whatever. Whenever I was pregnant, it really was never physical at all. 
Well, it, it probably played into his self-esteem that he was making something or doing something. Yeah. Who was the first person you talk with about the abusive behavior? I mean, did you, do you go to your parents or a sibling or a friend that you could confide in? What, who did you go to? I didn't really go to anybody. I have always been somebody who feels like I can handle everything on my own and I don't want help from anybody. Again, something I've learned to be able to do since I've matured since that situation. But I, again, was embarrassed and nervous. There are added concerns when you're a law enforcement officer and you're involved in a domestic violence relationship. I had to worry about whether or not I was going to have my gun taken away from me or whether or not he could make a claim against me. And it was always a constant balancing act for me to try and just mitigate the severity of it all, right? I was always trying to just downplay it in my mind that it's not that bad. So I didn't have to deal with the other things that would be affected by me being in this relationship. Wow. That is really a lot to, that's a lot to deal with on your own. You kind of took this whole thing on your, you know, by yourself. I wonder what would you tell somebody who's going through this right now, who is, who's not you? I mean, wouldn't you probably tell that person, don't take this on yourself and you need to talk with people. Oh, absolutely. But again, part of the abuse is, you know, isolation. It's a huge part of it. People who feel unsafe aren't going to do things to make them feel more unsafe. When you're telling on someone, which is really what it comes down to, it's when you feel the most unsafe. Because you're looking for help. Yeah, you're looking for help and you don't know if you can trust someone to give it to you. Right. You don't know if it'll make it worse. Right. You don't know if that story is now going to really get loose and come back, come back to see you after somebody calls this guy on it or whatever that is. Yeah. I mean, you ask about whether or not I talked to anybody. No, I didn't. However, you know, I would, I would talk to my mom about how I'm fighting with my ex-husband and, or, and when I say fighting, I mean arguing. I obviously never told them about the physical abuse at that point. My dad, on my wedding day to him, as we were about to walk down the aisle, said, are you sure you want to do this? Oh my God. Yeah. It's, Yeah. And part of me at that moment- Why do you think he said that to you? Well, I mean, now I know because he didn't think that he was good enough for me. And he didn't really have many reasons why, like that he could articulate. But at the time during that, I thought that was coming from a daddy who didn't want to lose his daughter. Sure. <laughs> I, would, I would probably think the same thing. Sure. I thought he was kind of joking, you know? Sure. Like, Are you sure you want to get married right. to my little girl? Right. You, you want to stay with daddy forever? You haven't signed on yet. Are you sure you want this house, so to speak? Yeah. Maybe dad knew more. Yeah. So even though you experienced some of his abusive behavior, then you also had children with him. Yeah, I did. And then on the honeymoon, we went to the Dominican Republic for our honeymoon, and it was just a really great evening. We just had it, obviously an open bar because it was all you can eat and drink in an all-inclusive package. He got highly intoxicated. On the way back, his whole demeanor just changed from being this happy newlywed husband to just having this face. And it's his blank stare, and it's this face I'll never forget because it's however he looked whenever he was just past a point of reasoning with, I was like, what's wrong? And he's like, nothing. He turned around and he threw me up against a rock wall and oh. held me by the throat and said, I could kill you down here and no one would find your body. I couldn't speak, and, but I was trying to say, what are you doing? An employee started to walk by and he let go of me. And we went up oh. to the room and he just passed out. And I passed out. And again, the next day he said nothing to me about it and acted like nothing was wrong. And in my head, I was like, man, he must've just been really, really, really drunk. Didn't know what he was doing. Doesn't even remember it. So how am I going to have this conversation with him? Why am I going to ruin the rest of the honeymoon? Why am I going to do anything that's going to make this worse? And I let it go. And so then it's just another all-inclusive day in the Dominican Republic. Yeah. 
Exactly. Back to the beach and uh, read a book, fall asleep, and get a drink. Yeah, and that was the end of March of 2006, and I got pregnant in May of 2006. So, again, we were great because he was still trying to probably make up for what he did without talking about it, and I got pregnant. So, for nine months, he was happy. He had this obvious sign of ownership over me. So anybody listening to this would say, well, okay, so why didn't you get out before you got married? Then why didn't you get out after you got married, after Dominican Republic? And then now we have children. So people who haven't been there don't know how hard it is. But why didn't you escape from this relationship, even though you were married, even though you had a child, but you think, you know, this thing is, it can't go to a good place. It's going to escalate. It's going to, it's going to be more horror stories, more nightmares. I'm trying to think about what my mindset was then, which is very different from what my mindset is now. Like now I would never tolerate even a second of that. Back then, again, it it wasn't something that was so prominent. It wasn't something that I felt was going to continue to be an issue. And maybe that was me just being naive. But I really thought that the more things I did right, the better our relationship would be. I got married in a church before my family and my friends and with God watching, I really took my vows very seriously. And I thought that the cause of his actions that were abusive were caused because of his addiction to alcohol. So mm-hmm. when we, He's, the guy's sick with something, right? Yeah. So in, in sickness and in health, right? That's one of the vows I took. And I tried after I'd had my oldest daughter, she was born in January of 2007. We immediately started working on trying to buy a house. So we were wrapped up in that and things were good because we had something else to focus on. When we got into the house, things got really stressful. He and I got into an argument then, and it was May of 2007. We just started yelling at each other. He pushed me against the wall again and put his fingers around my neck and started to strangle me. A tear rolled down my eye and then he let me go and he went into the bedroom. I was ready to walk out right then. But when I walked in, he had a shotgun held to his head. Oh my God. Yeah. That is horrible. Yeah. And he was crying and he was like, you don't understand all the things that have happened to me and I can't deal with any of it. And I promised to go to count. Like after I talked him out of not killing himself, he promised to go to counseling and he did. He started looking up like names for counselors for the two of us. And for me, that's a huge step forward, right? That's right. You finally feel like you've got a breakthrough. Absolutely. Right. And I'm like, okay, maybe we can survive this. Maybe we can make each other better. Maybe we'll be at a place where it's good. And I have this baby girl with you. Again, I look back now and I realize that he and I rarely ever had an intimate relationship that was uh, voluntary on both ends is the best way for me to say it. And up until just recently, I had never admitted that I was raped by my husband, but it was definitely not consensual a lot of times because it was me trying to appease him. So he wasn't mad at me. If I ever told him no, it was an all-out brawl, a fight. He would make me feel like I didn't want him, and then his self-esteem was gone. And then he would say, "Well, you're, if you're not having sex with me, then you're obviously having sex with somebody else." And so for me, a lot of the times that he and I had any kind of physical intimacy it was really just one-sided. Now looking back, I realize you know that is marital rape, especially when it's being done after I've been made to feel like I'm nothing and I'm worthless, and I ended up getting pregnant with my son. Yes. Now you're getting more of a family and a little bit deeper and it continues, right? Yeah. And I had a plan to leave after he had uh, held the shotgun to his neck, even though he had said he was going to go to counseling. I still had in my mind, like, I need to find a way to get out of this. I can't live like this. And then I found out I was pregnant. We just bought this house. 
I'm still a new officer because I transferred only, you know, seven months ago to the, and I'm at base pay and he's a newer officer and we're both working extra hours just to afford our house. And now I'm going to have another baby. Like, how am I going to do this? And so I stayed and things were great again, because I was pregnant. So yeah, there, there are parts that look redeeming. You know, we've turned a corner, he's getting help. We could have a house. We could have two children. If, if the bad things could dial down and go away, this could be good. Yeah. So I have to ask you, when you were married and, and you had all these things going on, so Heather, how bad did this actually get? Well, after the incident with the shotgun, I told him that there's no more weapons allowed at the house. Like, leave your duty weapon at work, and I'll leave my duty weapon at work. Get rid of your hunting rifles. I'm just not comfortable with it in the house. Things were great. Again, we had our son, and we were stressed, but he was working evenings. I was working days. And one night he came home, October 16, 2008. He was highly intoxicated. He was mad about something with like the garbage cans being kicked over, came in mad and he came in drunk and I didn't know it because he wasn't coming home until I was asleep and he was literally drinking bottles of vodka on his way home from work. He would pick them up at the end of work and then drive home and drink them. And he would So what time is this happening when he comes in? It was probably around uh, 11, 30, 12 at night. Okay. And I had to be up at 4.30, so I was right. asleep. Right. Again, I had thought he wasn't drinking anymore because he was hiding the bottles of vodka, empty bottles in the insulation in our detached garage. So I wouldn't even see him in recycling or in his truck. Mm. And when he came in, he started yelling at me and that right then and there, I was like, I'm done. I cannot do this. And I said it out loud and he's like, Oh, you're done. Oh, you're not done. I'll show you done. He ripped me by my clothes and dragged me into the living room. And for four hours, he beat me. He, threatened to use a belt on me. And he said that he was going to whip me on my legs because that's what his father used to do to him. And no one would be able to see it. He headbutted me. He bit my face. He spit on me. He punched me. He got a knife and said, you need to kill yourself because I'm not going down for this and tried to make me cut myself. And I refused. He made me call out of work. He made me tried to make me call my father and say goodbye to which I refused. And at that point he made me lay down on the ground. He put a pillow over my head. He took his gun out of his waistband, loaded around into the chamber, then began to pull the trigger. And I really did think I was dead. I, I thought that was the moment I was going to die. Then he passed out. So he falls over. You hear this body. I just, nothing happens. The pressure against my head stops being pushed against my head through the pillow. I wouldn't move, but then I could feel his body lay down next to me. I had to be quiet because the whole time I was enduring that, he said that if I woke either of our kids, that he would kill me and kill them. Absolutely horrible. So he's passed out. Now what happens? I laid there. I laid there for a couple hours because I knew that he was intoxicated. I could smell it on him the whole time. I was scared that if I got up, I didn't have a weapon and he would shoot me or he'd hurt the kids. You know, I had an eight month old and a 20 month old. There's no way I could have gotten them out of the house and then been quiet at all. And he was blocking my car in. So I just laid there and I just waited and I hoped that the alcohol would wear off by the, if he woke up and that I wouldn't have to endure anymore. How long was that? How long a period of time was that? I have to say it was probably two, maybe three hours. My daughter was murdered in 2005 by her ex-boyfriend. And no, time doesn't heal all wounds. Since those dark days, I have given over 100 speeches and interviews to be able to dispense such life-saving information, I needed to do a lot of research. Now it's all in one place. My daughter's story and our family's journey is now available in a book entitled When Dating Hurts, available only on Amazon in paperback and ebook. If you have a child, a family member, 
or a friend between 16 and 24 years of age, I suggest you give When Dating Hurts a Read. The information in this book has already saved lives. So he wakes up. Yeah, he wakes up and he just like looks at me and I have my clothes ripped and I have scratches and marks all over my body and the kids start to wake up and he doesn't say anything to me. And I know by now not to say anything to him. So I'm just kind of walking around being very quiet, trying to take care of the kids. And I'm thinking of a way to get out. I have to now think about my kids as well, because I've called out of work. I was supposed to be at work that day and I called out of work. So I say, listen, you know, our son hasn't really been feeling well. Let me call the pediatrician and see if we can bring him down to be seen. And he goes, I'll take him. And I was like, oh man, I can't let that happen. Because if I call the cops, he's going to have my son in the car. I was like, okay, let me call the doctor. So I called the doctor and luckily she gave us like a prescription over the phone because my son had some breathing issues when he was a kid. So it wasn't uncommon for us to call. So then I'm like, well, we weren't supposed to be here all weekend. I can't go to work looking like this. I'm going to have to take the whole weekend off. So somebody needs to go to the store. I'll go to the store. And he's like, no, I'll go to the store. And I was like, okay. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to make a list of things that he will never be able to find because he never does the grocery shopping. Mm. And that's going to buy me time because the grocery store was like 15 minutes away anyway. Because again, we talk about isolation and he made me buy a house that was 35, 45 minutes from work, you know, about the same for my parents and even further from his family. So I had nobody. So he went. And when I went to go get my keys, I saw that he took my keys. He's like, well, are we going to be okay? And I'm like, yep, we will be okay. And in my mind, I wasn't telling him we were going to be okay. I was saying me and my kids were going to be okay. But I said it to him as to not aggravate him. He's like, well, what are you going to do while I'm gone? I go, I'm going to go take a shower. I go, we're putting our son down for a nap. I go, I'm going to take our daughter in with us and I'm just going to take a shower. And I knew that would buy me some time if he tried to call her or why I wasn't answering his text messages. But again, he took my keys with him. I called 911. What do you tell them? You mean you try to, you have to explain the whole story pretty fast, right? Sort of. I called and hung up five times. The fifth time I finally said to this female dispatcher, listen, my husband and I are both police officers. We're off duty. We had an argument last night. I really need a police officer to come to my house. She saved my life that day because he started calling and texting and I wasn't answering. He was threatening to come back from the store early and to just drop everything. And what are you doing? And I'm telling her this and she can hear the sense of urgency in my voice, I guess, because I was like, listen, I have to be really honest with you. I I, I don't want to put this over the phone, but I don't know where his gun is. And it was worse than what I'm telling you, but I, I don't want to get into it. Please just send help because I think he's on his way back. And if he gets here, I'm scared of what's going to happen. And instead of her sending cops to my house, she sent them to the grocery store to get him there. Oh, good idea. Yeah, phenomenal. If it's telling at all, he walked out, saw six or seven police officers. They didn't say anything to him. He had a basket full of groceries and he just puts his hands up and turns around. Wow, that's good. So at that point, are you, you're out of there, that's it, I would think, right? I mean, it was a whirlwind. I made three phone calls. So I called 911 and talked to the dispatcher. As soon as I knew things were kind of under control, I called my father and I said, dad, I really need you to come get the kids. I have to go to court. My ex-husband and I had a really bad fight. I just, I need to go get a restraining order. I need you to come here fast. Then I called my captain. It's funny to think about my mindset at that time because I said to him, Cap, I can't really talk long, but my ex and I had this really bad domestic. I just, I'm going to be going to court and I just wanted to let you know. And 20 minutes later, he and the other captain were at my house. Oh boy. And talk about a moment of being re-victimized and not really knowing that that's what's happening. Here I am as this officer is trying to prove herself as being strong and confident and able and capable. 
on the road and I have these two men sitting next to me as I'm crying and swollen and bloody and in ripped clothing in my living room that's trashed when we don't even really have a personal relationship because I barely know them. It was, it was difficult on a whole nother level. So how, how did that go? How did they handle it? They were phenomenal at the time. They said anything you need. I don't think they really knew what to do mm. or what to say. You know, it wasn't something that they were responding to as a police officer. It was something they were responding to as an administrator to look after their employee. And again, there's probably a whole lot of questions that they had to worry about whether or not, you know, I had started it and whether or not I was going to be able to return to work and whether or not there was going to be any fallout. And as a victim, you shouldn't have to worry about that at all. And unfortunately, we always do because of being so used to being victimized. You always wonder what else is going to come at me. But that was it, though. That's the, is that the last time you were with that man in that house living with him in any capacity, right? Yes, it was. Yes, absolutely. So he was arrested. I went down and I made a statement and they ended up charging him with actually two counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, two counts of possession of a weapon for unlawful purposes, criminal restraint and terroristic threats. And then I got a restraining order, but the judge also put a no contact order in place a victim of domestic violence can file for a, an emergent temporary restraining order, which can turn into a final restraining order. But a judge also has the option of putting a no contact order in place. And the difference is, is that a no contact order put in place by a judge cannot be relieved by anybody other than a judge. A victim can't walk into a court and say, you know what? I'm okay. I'm fine. I don't need this protection. You can drop the restraining order, which you can do. With right. Because they've seen, they've probably seen that before and it didn't work out very well. Yeah. And we're talking about somebody who is a public servant, who has access to a gun, who's supposed to protect and serve. And this happened. So he went to jail for 14 days and then he was released after he had to go through some psychological evaluation and he ha was released to a treatment facility for his alcoholism. And after that, he was out on bail. So he didn't do time, real time. Uh, he ended up doing some time after he was convicted, after he took a plea deal. But we went through a process called a uh, grand jury, which in New Jersey, that's basically being in front of your peers to see if there's enough probable cause in order to do formal charges against somebody. Defendants don't normally testify. <laughs> They're actually advised not to because I believe the rules of admissibility are a little different in grand jury than they are in a trial. He had such an ego that he went and he testified at grand jury on behalf of himself. And he just made up all these lies. And he was caught in them because while he was in his treatment facility, and in jail, he had sent me letters and sent letters to my parents. The prosecutor's office didn't violate him on the no contact order, but what they did do was they used those letters against him in grand jury to show that he was lying, that he didn't have credibility. When I walked out of grand jury, the grand jury members, grown men, walked past me and said, thank you for being strong and speaking up and for what I went through, that they were so sorry. And they ended up turning around and charging him. They upgraded his charges to kidnapping and... I think two or three counts of perjury as well. So that got him time there? Well, it's still out on bail because now he's not in a trial yet. And the trial could have taken years. Back then we were looking at maybe five or six years out for a trial. And oh it was my, God, that's crazy. Yeah. And it was my word against his, and it was an isolated reported incident. And that's really important for victims to know, because if you come forward now, unlike in 2008, right now, your past history, even if unreported can be used against a defendant for means of a restraining order, but not for means of charges, unless it's recorded. They basically said that because he was a police officer and he was officer of the year and he had all these arrests and he was an outstanding citizen and 
passed a psych exam that he would look more like a credible witness. And because it was done while he was under the influence of alcohol, that he probably would not get much. And so they said that they were going to offer him a six-month plea deal, to which he took, and he ended up serving two months and one week. That That's absolutely obscene. Yeah. That is just so bad. You have seen it all, I'm telling you. So unlike most women, you were a career law enforcement officer when this happened. You know how to defend yourself. You had a head start on putting clues together. Even still, you kind of gave any benefit of the doubt over to him, plus his stories and his background and all these things he told you. You had nightmarish years of horrible abuse happening to you. With everything you've learned, I mean, you've, you've been through it. You didn't learn this in a book. You've experienced it. It had many twists and turns, a lot of them just so painful. What can we tell our, our audience? What can we tell moms and dads who think or know their daughters or might be their sons going through something too? What do you tell these people? You know, like I know you get up and you speak and you motivate. What do you tell them? That it doesn't matter who you are. It can happen to anybody. Here I am somebody who should have known, right? That's how people look at it. I should have known better, <laughs> I guess. It's just about support. And if somebody's in a relationship with somebody who's abusing them, it's not your choice to get them out of it. it it's got to be the choice of the victim. And it has to be when they've had enough. But helping them understand that their self-worth, continually letting them know that no matter what you're there to support them, is I think the biggest thing that you can do for somebody that you know is a victim of any kind of abuse. Because it's got to be on their timeline. Otherwise, they're not going to be comfortable to one, tell the truth. Two, to not go back. If you make them feel bad about not leaving, they're not going to feel like they have your support when they're actually ready to do so. Those are very important points. When you're on the receiving end of hearing that from someone who's abused, you think, well, get out of it. Leave this guy or I'll, I'll help you leave this guy or you can't do this. They don't understand what it's like. You know, They want to push that button and eject you out of that relationship and the guy just goes away and, and everything's going to be better. They don't get that that doesn't happen like that at all. Being a, a really good listener to someone who's being abused is so important and not being judgmental and not pushing that person. You know, you have to let, like you say, you have to let that person get there on their own clock. You know, they, they have to reach the point where they say, you know what, I'm really at that point where I can't do this one more moment. Yeah. And for me, my moment was if I stay, I know that I will be killed by this man or my kids will be. And I think a lot of the time that people are pushed out of a relationship that's abusive because they see the effects it's having on their kids and they put their kids before them. But I can honestly say that at this point, it wasn't just about my kids. I did realize that my life was in danger. Nothing else mattered because I knew that no matter what, I knew how to survive. I would survive and I had a support system. Even if I lost my job or something that maybe wasn't even my fault, that I would be okay. Yeah, that's, I, I think, yeah. I mean, I, I think in your particular case, you absolutely got there. And, and everybody's story is a little different, and yet somehow the template is very similar. Do you feel that you're at peace now, with, now that this is kind of behind you by a few years? I mean, or do you still have these have flashbacks about moments and, and I guess what you could call PTSD? Do you still, do you think you're clear? I don't think I'm ever going to be clear. I have reached a point of forgiveness for myself. I have had very open conversations with my ex-husband in regards to the fact that he doesn't not control me anymore. That's given me mm -hmm. peace when sure, I've taken does, that back. With every continued success that I have in my in my personal and professional life is a little bit more of empowerment for me. It moves me further away from some of the revolving issues that I was always focused on. And then an incident happened between my ex with my kids. I started having 
realizations about some of the things that I was feeling physically. For instance, if I didn't get them there on time for drop off every other weekend, I would start to physically react to that. Which is honestly very hard for me to say out loud because I know that there's a possibility that my ex could listen to this and I hate that he will be able to know that he still has some control over me. I think for transparency purposes, I really need to put it out there because he doesn't have that control anymore. But again, I finally realized that there are things that are going on in my stress levels and ways I'm reacting to things that are due to his ability to still control me through our children. And I, I took control of it and I still have issues sometimes with the way I feel physically, but I really have worked very hard on the mental aspect of it all in order to try and have that overcome the physical aspect of it. You still see him every other week or so, don't you? Well, sort of. I don't necessarily always see him. And even if we do see each other, it's back and forth. And we've had issues with our kids where we had to co-parent. We've had to be in the same room or we've had to be in the same parking lot in order to help our kids. Again, it's not easy for me at all, but my kids come first no matter what. I'm a lot more fortunate than other people. I can wear my gun off duty and feel that added sense of protection if at any point I need to protect myself to that point again, right? I know that I have resources beyond what other people have. So even if I have to co-parent with him in person, I still have an added layer of protection for myself. Yeah, you, you definitely have that in your corner because you just don't know if this could rear itself up again, right? Yeah. You know, I, I often get asked the question why I didn't try to overcome him when he was, you know, beating me. When I was going through what I was going through, I saw him there with the gun in his waistband. And hindsight, again, being 2020, now I realize that him bringing that gun home was premeditated because we had had that agreement that no weapons would be back, brought back to the house. He carried a different gun that I carry and he was more proficient at using it. I was really worried that the gun would go off and hit one of my kids because they were right through the next room or that something would happen. You know, I look back and wonder what I could have done different. I know that I did exactly what I needed to do in that moment and I endured what I had to endure for a reason. It absolutely sucks that I went through what I, I went through. I can't continue to be a victim and allow myself to just hold it in. And that's the reason that I talk to people and I let them know. And it's served a much higher purpose. Would I ever want to go through it again? No. But knowing that I could help as many people that I get to help now more than I do as a police officer, just by having victims come in and say, you guys would never understand what I'm going through. You're a police officer. And I could say, no, I understand exactly what you're going through. Let me just talk to you about why I understand. And let me tell you what it's going to be like trying to move forward. I have both sides of it. I know what happens as the victim. I know what happens when you come to a police department. I know what happens in court proceedings. I know what happens after when you have children. I have all of that life experience to be able to help people move through every stage of the process of recovery from being a victim of domestic violence. It just makes you the perfect person to talk to. You know, it's not hypothetical. It's not that you've just picked up things over the course of of dealing with cases over the years and, and uh, being called to domestic situations that are breaking loose in somebody's house. It's, you've had it in your own home right there. Let me ask you this. If you, were to, if you were to put up a big billboard to advise parents and young women, young adults, uh, students, teachers about dating violence in big, bold letters, what would it say, do you think? I came up with a phrase called, you are enough. I've made the hashtag as Y-A-E to abbreviate that. So you are enough. So hashtag YAE. And I think I would probably put that up there because I, I really do think the underlying theme of all abusive relationships is the victim not believing that their own needs and wants are enough and not realizing that by being alone, they can work on themselves. So they don't need to be with a person that's making them feel like less than they are or self-loving. 
I'm, I'm looking back at your life and I feel from everything you've told me, and I, I'm right there with you, that you were enough. And I, I would imagine maybe you arrived at that line because there were people who came to you and you saw in them that they felt like they had to be dependent and they had to they had to put up with what was happening to them, even though they didn't like it and couldn't figure out ways to stop it, right? Oh, that's a great assessment, except for the fact that I obviously didn't think that I was enough. And I obviously allowed what I thought other people's perceptions of me were going to be because of going through it to dictate how long I stayed in that relationship. Okay. Now, what I was thinking was that you are enough. I don't feel like that's you coaching you back when you were 23. I feel like that's you today coaching other people. Would that be fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, knowing the relationship I have now with my current husband and knowing what real love is like, how friendship is really the foundation. I understand. Okay. Yes, I get that now. Totally. The only reason I have the relationship I have now with my current husband is because of what I went through. I really was able to self-reflect after I got out of that situation. I'm not talking about within the first week or the first year, the first two years or whatever. I knew I was not ready to date for a while, but I knew when I did that there were going to be expectations that I had. There were going to be things that I did not tolerate. And if I was alone for the rest of my life, I was okay with it. Believing the fact that you're enough and your beliefs and your your limits and your expectations of other people really have to be on your own terms. And it took it took quite a lot of education, or in this case, really experience for you to arrive at that at that crystallized moment, that crystallized thought. So that's brilliant. I mean, it, it really took the love of my husband now because there is nothing that I can't do without him by my, by my side, with him by my side. There's, there's nothing that will stop me from doing what I want to accomplish as long as he is my partner, because he is the most supportive, incredible person. And he's never like, are you doing a little too much? Do you really need to do that? Never at all, ever. I mean, one of the ways that I took back control of my life after the incident happened with my ex-husband was I went back to school and I finished my degree and I haven't stopped since I, I got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. I went back and I got two master's degrees, and I'm currently working on my PhD. Uh, you mentioned that I'm nice. an adjunct professor. You know, I, I'm part of my girls' Girl Scout groups. I go camping with my son for Cub Scouts. I try to coach. Uh, you know, I'm a police lieutenant. You know, I teach in, in different genres. And it's not because I'm this person who just needs to keep always going. But I feel as though part of it is probably because I was so held back while I was in this relationship with my ex-husband that I just try to do as much as I possibly can. You have. I mean, you're just remarkable. The biggest motivating factor for anybody to get out of a relationship or to connect to a story is that personalization. And when I purchased your book, I, I read it probably in a day. It was, so, it was so perfectly written. And I'm not just saying that because you're here and I'm talking to you, because there were little moments of your personal life that you shared that really showed the human aspect of what you and your family went through. You know, you're a victim just as much as Kristen was. I just read it and thought about what it would be like for my parents to find out that I had been killed. That was the biggest turning moment for me reading the book because it's really hard for my mom. And I'm sure it's really hard for my dad too. It's really hard for my mom to listen to me talk about this because I'm her kid and I went through this. And as strong as I may come off to people, I'm human. And it was really hard to go through emotionally. And I think I get more upset about it when I think about them hurting from what I went through more than what I went through. And yeah. so when I read your book and I heard it from your perspective, I thought it was the most poignant and perfectly timed book for this generation of people. 
because again, if you don't know what you're looking for, you don't know what you're looking for. My mom will not listen to this podcast. She will not come see me speak publicly. And it is not because she does not support what I'm doing. It's because it hurts her too much to hear what I went through. I just can't imagine what it would have been like for them if I had stayed in the relationship. And it gives me fuel to continue to push forward to help other people. And I think your book is going to do exactly that. Yeah, that's that's and that's exactly why the book was written. Knowing what it was like to go through it, we all thought at this house that if we could do something that would prevent others from having to be stuck with this for the rest of our lives, to have to to relive what happened to her and all the aftermath, if we could do something, if we could devote time to a book and a podcast, that that would be something that we could feel good about. We can't have what we want. We can't have Kristen back, but but we can prevent other Kristen Mitchell type stories from happening. And, and we have. You have a tattoo on your right arm. Tell me about it. I think you're referencing the one that says Matthew 5, 9. Exactly. So tell us about it. So Matthew 5, 9 means blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. It is got a dual meaning because my husband's name is Matthew. I probably would have never put somebody's name on my body, but he's just incredible. So it's a dual purpose. It's it's one honoring him. He brings peace to my life like no one else ever could. Two, it's because of, you know, my commitment in the law enforcement community in regards to being a peacemaker. That is going to come through a ton of different venues. It's going to be my response to calls on scene. It's going to come through my advocacy work. It, you know, it's it's going to come through my support of the positive things we do as law enforcement officers. So that is the tattoo on my right arm. Yes. Yeah. I just think that's brilliant. Thanks. So Heather, I just want to thank you so much for stopping your busy life, your career and your home life and everything to stop and give us this time today. You know, I think that I've learned a lot more about you. I know a lot, knew a lot of this already, but to have you give it to us and give us such detail to open up and you know, you're just uh, really one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. And I'm just so fortunate to know you. I just want to thank you. And I just, uh, I wish you the best, your family, everybody. Just thank you for, you know, you're a giver and just uh, exemplary. So thank you so much. I just want to thank you on behalf of victims and specifically being someone who understands what Kristen went through on behalf of her, that she has this, these parents with this kind of strength to actually do better and help people. It is the most incredible gift that you are sharing her story with people in order to save other people, despite the tragedy that you guys endured. And I'm honored to know you and your family. I, I'm, I'm just so thankful for you. Thank you. I know we'll be in touch, so uh, I don't, I'm not going to say goodbye. <laughs> I just want to say thanks and, and be safe. We need more people like you. Thank you very much. One in three women will suffer serious physical violence in an intimate partner relationship. It typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but can happen at any age. We lost our daughter to dating violence, but if we had read a book like When Dating Hurts back then, we believe things would have turned out differently. Do your daughter a favor. Do your family a favor. Dating violence is real. Believe me, I know. Read When Dating Hurts, then pass a copy to someone who needs to see it. When it comes to something as insidious as dating violence, there are no do-overs.